This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Juliana. And today we are talking about The First Man in the Moon, a novel by H.G. Wells from... 1900 and 1901. First published serially in 1900 and then uh, as a book in 1901. And we've uh, we've done one other Wells book together. Yeah, we did. Exactly. What was that one? Uh, Oh, uh, what was it? Um, Um, It was a dystopia set on Earth. Right. Uh, I want to say looking backward, but that's not it. That's by Bellamy. No. Um, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, I it. it's, it's about a guy who falls asleep. Um, oh, yeah. The Sleep Awakens. Ah, that's it. The Sleep. See, the problem with that book is it has like six or seven titles. When the Sleeper Awakes. Yes. The Sleeper Awakes. Uh, <laughs> the Sleep Awakens. Yeah. It's got like five or six different names. And Yeah, right. Uh, but yeah, it's about a guy waking up. <laughs> but this book only has one name, right? Yes. Uh, although I think a lot of people want to call it On the Moon. The first Yeah, man- I was actually mixing that up as well. But it is In yeah. the Moon, right? Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's kind of unfortunate for the the book, I think, that it's that it's called In the Moon. Because I think more people would read it if it was On the Moon. Because they would think it, it would be about, you know, sort of today about landing on the moon like right. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin right which is and actually like it is it is I mean there's a lot of parallels to it yeah and uh, you watched that uh, 1964 movie right right I did and that's what's interesting about that one is it's set uh in the contemporary time right 64 yes. yeah that's um, the uh, that's the story that surrounds the actual book story Right, the frame, the frame for it. The frame, yes. Um, and then that, the '64 version, they've got a multinational crew landing on the moon. Right, there's a Russians. I noticed the, that too. Uh, yes. Right, um, and I thought that was pretty cool because it, I mean it comes out five years before it actually happens. Yeah. But doing it kind of like pretty well, I thought. I thought so too, except when uh, he first steps out, uh, it looks a bit funny. <laughs> you know, there's there's a lot of sort of technical issues uh with their with their yeah. story i th- i thought they were sending the russian out first but i think it was the american i don't know yeah i think so too but um, it was funny when then the the british guy came out and said oh i didn't place it there <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah well what i think there's lots of fun things to play with there in the the 2010 adaptation they do they have that same frame and i think okay Almost everybody who is going to tell this story, you know, retell it in the future, is going to have to put a frame around it um, because of the actual events that have, you know, the first man on the moon. Right. And what we know now about the moon. But in the in the 2010 version, it's set in 1969. Okay. It's the day of the moon landing. And there's a little boy at a, uh, I don't know, like a moon landing fair in England. 
and all the kids are running around and his his dad wanders off and the kid gets lost and he goes into a tent where there's a grumpy old man who <laughs> who has a kinematoscope which is like a i don't know it's like a anyways he has films um, ah, okay the kids were making fun of him for earlier and it's because he has footage of the first moon landing of the <laughs> right? real first moon landing <laughs> yes. yeah and so uh the 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 frame there is that the the boy is told the story by uh bedford um, yeah who's one of our characters from the book um as a you know very old man um like in the in the 64 movie as well yeah yeah exactly it's it, i mean i don't I don't know that they had to even, you know, in this 2010 version, have seen the 64 movie to come up with this frame. I think it's very natural, given that that the moon landing was going to happen in 64. Yeah. You know, they knew it was going to happen. And, and now in 2010, they, they knew it had happened. So right. one of the things that they have in common for both of those is that there's no growing plants on the moon. Yes, I noticed that too. That was one of the big things that was different. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes sense because now we know how the moon looks like. <laughs> I yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. I I, I think that uh, you they want to never retell it again with the uh, with the plants growing on the moon. But I think the story in the novel it should never be changed. You know. Yeah. But uh, I thought that was I thought that was fun. I really appreciated like those sequences, even though, yeah, it totally doesn't fit with our reality, right? No, but I really There's... enjoyed it that they eat it and then uh, in in <laughs> some trance, <laughs> like yeah, they get drugged and, like, up, drugged up, and then uh, things happen. Yeah, I yeah. really really enjoyed that see that sequence there. That was really yeah. fun, and that kind of. of that kind of is replaced in the 64 movie by the woman, you know. Um, right. It's kind of they introduce the woman to have some mistakes happening because the woman, of course, she does weird stuff and uh, it's super naive and does just something because she's a woman. And yeah. uh, in the real book, I think that is kind of the, the man get drugged up and then they act a bit stupid. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing that happens in that 64 movie, they also do it in the 2010, um, is that it's, it's kind of a comedy. You know, did you notice right. that? Re uh, I didn't really feel so much like a comedy. I, I tried hard, but it, it had this weird aggressive was, undertone. Yeah, it was not very effective as a comedy. I'm just saying that, you know, they, they sort of, uh, especially in those early sequences on Earth. In the, yeah. They, yeah, they sort right. of have this comedic effect. And I think that's actually in the book, too. I mean, if you see how Bedford and uh, Cavour meet and yes. sort of they have this passive-aggressive argument about, <laughs> about one guy's trying to write a play and the other guy's trying to rocket, you know, yeah. rocket himself to the moon. And then the the three, they think that the three workmen got blown up. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the way Cavard talks and the way Bedford talks, it is almost comedic, but there is this sort of sinister undertone to the book that yes. I think is absent from both the movies. And I think so too. Yes. That, I noticed that a lot. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the ending of the 64 movie, how does that one end? It's got, 
um, it just it's just uh, like uh, it just says that uh, like the, the 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 people who then actually were on the moon they discovered mm. that all the um, inside uh, the caves all fall down and right. all every all life is uh, gone because of some germs and viruses or something mm-hmm. and that the selenites didn't have enough um, immune system something and then they right. all died. Right, and and it it's implied that bed uh, that Cavor had a cold, and that's what caused it. Yes. And so it, what I was thinking is that it's that's that's another H.G. Wells book, right? That's the War of the Worlds in reverse. Yeah, where yeah, that is true. Go to go to the alien planet and kill everybody off by their diseases, by the germs, and in actually the bacteria, the the smallest things on Earth kill the biggest right. intruders. Yeah. That's right. I was quite disappointed by that ending of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I think the ending of the book is actually really strong. Oh, really strong, yeah. And um, they could have totally put that in somehow. Well, but it doesn't fit with that comedy thing that that yeah. they're they're mm-hmm. sort of going for. The I mean, adding adding the woman in there, it, it was like to make it a family movie, sort of. You oh, know, yeah, the romance. Uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it was um, it was amusing. They had, you know, all those reporters running around. It was sort of like one of those yes. '60s comedies. It, I mean, it, it was it was light and amusing, but I think the book is not so, trying to be light at all. No, and, I don't think so either. The this the, the sinister and like really seriousness about it. Yeah, totally. I miss that. I miss that a lot. And also, I really like the. Um, what I liked so much about the beginning when I started reading the book was coming from a, um, I read an Elizabeth Moon Trading in Danger movie right. uh, book just right. before. And the change of the language and the, uh, the, the high st- status of the language in H.G. Wells, so nice. Yeah, he, 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 he likes to, but it's not just language. I mean, I think the, the, the sequence he does, he does this in a lot of books. Right yeah. at the beginning mm-hmm. of a book, uh, like in The Invisible Man or whatever, whatever science fiction book he's, he's promulgating, he has a, a scene where he explains one character to another character and yeah. of course mm-hmm. to us, um, some scientific principle that, that it's in the time machine as well, where, yeah. you know, this mm-hmm. is, if, if, uh, there's three axes to the physical world, the fourth axis is, uh, is time, right? Yeah. And then he uses a few analogies to set it uh, us up for the rest of the book. Yes. I mean, Cavorite yeah. is, uh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm like thinking maybe there is something like Cavorite. Right? Oh yeah. I was totally thinking this could be something. I mean, this totally. is the kind of stuff that they coming up with these science fiction things of gravitational ba- waves and stuff. Yeah. I mean, um, I thought of how relevant it was just with the, gravity waves actually being detected or part yeah of totally and now you think oh okay maybe they can actually do work on uh some sort of manipulation of gravity i mean that is not so so far off he, he in in the book he has like three or four examples I mean, he's got glass glasses uh, allows visible light through but blocks heat um yeah. you know mm-hmm. a piece of steel blocks um blocks light and uh and then there was like some chemical bromine solution or something that blocked uh, something else, right? And yeah, and you go and it all needs uh, like melting of something, like yeah. 
Um, and I, I think this is also some really cool uh, conclusions that if you have all these kind of things that can block something and let something through at the same time, you just need to find something else that you just melt and mm. add some stuff to it. And then uh, something comes up and then uh, uh, is transparent to gravity or not transparent to gravity. I think that is kind of a, a good uh, conclusion that he did there. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. And um, the spaceship, I think, is awesome too. I, I keep uh, looking at the pictures from the different serializations of yeah. the spaceship. And it's like a dodecahedron or something. I don't know, 20, 20 sides or 15 sides or no, probably nothing. They call it Six, a sphere. Yeah, the, it's a glass. It, what's cool is the inside, it is a glass sphere, right? Yeah. And then the outside is um, like cubed. Uh, not cubed. It's it's uh, it's like a dice, you know, yes. a die. Um. Uh, one of those 20-sided or 16-sided dies. And the, the way the system works, I, I mean, it's ingenious. He's got uh, these panels, uh, like blind, louvered blinds of Cavorite that he yes. can open close to yeah. cut off the ship from... From gravity, uh, from gravitational from pull. Gravity. That's right. Yeah. And yeah, it's... because it's sitting on at the bottom of an ocean of air on Earth... Yeah. That's what shoots it off the Earth, right? Yeah, it's and it's genius. Hard to get your mind around what's actually happening. I, I I went over that chapter, the early chapter where the explosion happens. It's not really yeah. an explosion, but they just left like a piece of a sheet of cavorite sort of loose. Yeah, and that, that that's where the sinister part starts for the book too, is that Caver says. You know, if that thing had been tied down, that would have caused all the Earth's atmosphere to, like, disappear into space. Yeah. And, like, wow, that's super genius. Like, that's why when you're reading H.G. Wells, you say, of course, he's the father of science fiction, right? Yeah, and it has so much impact. Totally. And then thinking about that and having an object like the sphere... Um, with all these panels on it that once you close the, it off, it's like a air bubble at the bottom of, of the ocean, right? Yeah. Of course it's going to go up. Yeah. But then when you're out in space, how do you get that air bubble to go somewhere? That also is genius, right? He, he says, oh, we open a louver, uh, you know, open one of the panels and we yeah. point it at any stellar body, right? Anything with gravity. And then that pulls it. It pulls it in that direction. Genius. Yeah, it's so, and it's so simple. That is the whole point about it. It is the, the you just need this one component, which is the cavrite. Yep. And then the the usage of it is so simple. You just shield it off, or not. <laughs> it's just. Yeah. And it, what what actually they're shielding too is the people inside are the are the gravitational thing, right? That's the thing that's attracted to that stellar body. So it's as if the person is flying to the moon being attracted by being pulled to the moon. Yeah. Wow. Brilliant, yeah, it's, right? It's, it's so great. I loved it. <laughs> it's brilliant. And yeah. there's some, um, the other thing that I was thinking about that shape, right, is, and I think it works really well with it being glass and a, a number of other sort of things that happen in the book, but it, it really resonated with me, is that you've got this spherical object with these shutters that can open and close yeah. The, those are windows, right? Yes. 
you can see the object that you're you're going to pull towards or being attracted towards and that's that's also an eye that's how eyes work yeah you you point it at something and then it, look at thing, it. it and yeah. you're attracted to that thing yeah. right say, this is how that. i learned this is what i learned in driving school you know when you go around corners Always yeah. look there where you want to go, and you will go there. <laughs> right. Well, hopefully. <laughs> you got your hands attached to the wheel, hopefully. Yeah, well, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, there's a th – that is in The Invisible Man, too, about, you know, how light works and eyes. But I, it just – it seems to me that that's the most amazing spaceship where you, you point at the thing that you want to go to, and, and that's where you go it goes. Yeah. Right? So you just simple. open the eye, and and even if the ship's not oriented in the right way, right? It's okay. Yeah. You got another louver. You just pointed at that, open that, close the other one, and open that one. Yes, and I think that was a bit too ridiculous in the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think the movies. Yeah, it it it, it works so well as a book, and you can sort of see why the movie's forgotten. I'd never, I'd I'd never really even heard of it until I went looking. Yeah. Had you heard I, of it? No, and not even of the 2010 movie. <laughs> no idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, the 2010. It, it's a TV BBC movie. You know, yeah. there's basically two actors. Uh, there's no woman character added. Um, and then there's all the aliens are CGI and they uh, kind of low budget CGI. Yeah. But uh, the other thing that's weird about that second movie. Uh, the 2010 is the ending also is screwed up um, oh, in the no. same way, but it's, it's screwed up in a different way. Um, Caver is on the moon as we, as we see him in the book, he's on the moon and um, he, he, we sort of hear that last transmission Yeah, and then he, we see him making Caverite. And the aliens have, oh, not aliens, the Selenites have made a whole bunch of spaceships, uh, ah. just like that he's arrived in. And he kills everybody on the moon by spilling the, spilling the Caverite mix. Oh, so what happened, what didn't happen in the explosion on Earth then happened exactly, on the moon. Exactly. Right. And there's a symmetry there, but, um, I think both, both movie versions, are missing the point of uh, what Wells is saying with this book. Yeah. Which is, uh, it's super ambiguous, right? That last, lo- that last transmission, the last word from the moon, is not even a word. And we don't know what it means. Here's the recipe for Cavorite. First, and then the last word is U-less. U-L-E-S-S. Yeah. Is that unless? Yeah. Or useless? <laughs> Useless? Maybe. Yeah, I mean, what what does that mean? Well, that's the whole point. And this is also part of what, uh, what, what is so important when you cut out the, um, the lonely trip back from the moon of Bedford mm-hmm. in the sphere. It's the loneliness of humanity. Oh, yeah. I, I love that he, he doesn't know who he is. He, he yeah, isn't connected to him. Yeah, he just gets him. so lost. Well, but it's also like he's just a he's just a being. He's not his identity. He's, he's, yeah. he's man alone. And there's a huge amount of theme going on with with what Caver's doing in those transmissions. Like yes. that is the dystopia 
slash utopia that uh, Wells is talking about is kind of allows us to see what our purpose it's it's sort of wrestling with our purpose as human beings on the surface of the earth right yeah um there's one thing i heard that kind of is related to this that i thought i thought of while i was listening to the final chapters of this book um one definition of work (laughs) um and i thought it was really useful um and uh also completely useless which is, yeah. um, the definition is, uh, work is, uh, activity on or near the earth's surface. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And as soon as you leave the earth, it's not work. Right. Um, which is kind of true, right? I mean, uh, astronauts are working in space, uh, I guess. Yeah, but it's their life there. They can't do anything. They can't not work. But they're kind of near the earth's surface too, if we're talking about the ones today, right? I mean, they're not that yeah. far. And yeah. miners, you know, they're not going down deep like the uh, the selenites, right? That's yeah. one of the the points that the the great hive mind or whatever it is on it's not a hive mind. The great mind on on the moon is making yeah. you know wasting all this activity on war when you haven't been extracting the resources of your your earth. And it makes you think that the selenites might want to come down and take our our mines, <laughs> you know, take start mining. <laughs> well, well, I totally think that is this, um, the, because they are so insect-like, um, mm-hmm. and the idea of what you said with a hive mind, I think that is totally what, what he's playing up to is that you have this one intelligent mind and then lots of just workers who do the work and this is just their job and they don't really think about it. They're just doing it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this is like, come, that this comes back on so much science fiction afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think it, oh. It totally is uh, kind of uh, trying to uh, come up with a, a different idea of how life works. Mm-hmm. And it's comparing it to like ants. And ants work pretty well. So yeah. many of them on Earth. Like if you take all the ants together, they're way more than humans. They're more successful, yeah. Exactly. And um, yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed that too. And uh, um, it is, uh, it is kind of... It shows again how how weird humanity acts, especially on the topic of war and Mm -hmm. uh, why it is so senseless. There's a a lot of uh, stuff happening at the end. Bedford is a he's he's the classic monster character from. Oh, yeah, so much from all the, the early Wells books like. Um, he is the invisible man. He's the, um, the unreliable narrator from the island of Dr. Moreau. Yeah. He's, he's the, the, uh, there's a character in the country of the blind, a short story, uh, that, you know, he f- discovers this valley of blind people in South America. Um, and he thinks, well, I have two eyes. I'm going to be the king. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Turns out your, your evil uh, plans to, you know, take over the society are not going to go in your favor. Yeah. But, he Bedford seems like a decent, kind enough fellow, but once you just scratch a little bit of the surface, or you notice yeah. the things that he says about himself, say, you know, he's actually quite an asshole. And oh yeah, oh, and this is the thing that comes out in the '64 uh, movie so much mm-hmm. better because it's they they crystallize that a lot clearer. 
right mm-hmm. at the beginning with the house when he's selling the house and um and his uh, girlfriend slash wife yeah and it's just like you can see how like how what kind of a bad man he is actually yeah yeah and but uh, playing for comedy there whereas i think in i mean it's slightly touched on in the book that it's it's, it's sort yeah. of cute maybe that's his spin on it isn't it cute but yeah. the very mm-hmm. first thing we learn about him is that he is uh he is on the run from his debts, right? Yes. He he, he is He's a he's useless person. Out, he's hiding out in a cabin, right? Yeah. In a most remote part of England so that they can't find him. Yeah. Uh, and he's trying on to, to write a play which he doesn't accomplish. He, yeah, he's he's that's him telling himself what he's doing there. He's actually yeah. hiding from his debts, right? Yeah. They don't know where he is. No. And at the end, when we, well, near the end, when we find out, you know, he's got these debts, he's going to, he changes his name. He calls himself yeah. Blake. So he doesn't have to pay his debts. Yeah. Yeah. He's totally uh, a loser kind of person. And I think in the, in the book, it is slightly less clear what kind of person yeah, he is? I mean, it's not quite that story, open. Right? He's, yeah, putting, yeah. Putting, totally. he's putting his spin on it. And we, we sympathize with him, even though, if you look at it closely, he he. one of the things he did was he abandoned his friend on the moon. Oh, yeah, but it, I think that in the book, you know, when he's uh, on the run and he's, like, fighting mm-hmm. against the shadow and against uh, not having air and food, mm-hmm. you can kind of feel that... But that's his version now, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, of course. Do well, we have yeah. that note? I kind of like once you start suspecting this guy, right? Uh, yeah. The only thing I was thinking, you know what? I don't trust anything he said. But then there's these yeah. transmissions, and then I thought, okay, so some of that story is true, right? Yes. Yeah, I think he's a really good lying teller in in in, in the in the way of keeping the, keeping it close to the truth as possible and adding stuff. Putting a good spin <laughs> on it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what he's good at. Um, but in the in the movie, he actually comes across as real as a really uh, violent, uh, aggressive person when he mm-hmm. really he's leaving the cave over there, cavo mm-hmm. and and he's shooting at the mind person. Mm-hmm. And at the leader of the Selenites, and that is something very much more aggressive than it's in the book. Mm-hmm. Although uh, I think that uh, Wells wants us to think about how violent he was on the moon as yeah. well. He's very subtle at it, though, and I really, I really dug, I dig the way Wells writes. And there's, yes. you remember the first, uh, they're they're about they're the they've been captured, they're put into gold chains, right? Yes. And they're to be herded over this bridge that yeah, is too... Yeah, that was the first violent yeah. outbreak. <laughs> right. And so what does he do? He punches one of the selenites in the head. It goes yes. right through... His fist goes right through its head. Right? Yes. And he does that a bunch of times. Um, mm. He kills them a bunch of times. And then when he gets back to Earth, he goes to the hotel. Right? And what's the very first thing he does? Punches He orders him. eggs. Oh, right. And, and he's very specific. He knocks yeah. the tops off of the eggs. Yeah. And it's like I think I think that it might have been his like his hand went through uh my hand went through the the selenite's head just like a uh, the egg shaped egg. heads, yeah. Yeah. But just mm-hmm. like an egg, you know, like bro- broken like an eggshell. Yeah. And 
And when he gets to Earth, he isn't like turned off by the idea of eggs. He's like, he's excited by it because yeah. his whole thing is uh, we're going to turn the moon into another colony, right? Of course. We're going to mine the crap out of it and, and subdue the natives. Yeah. This is what humanity does. It, it's, it's what Wells is saying, right? And when Cavour is on the moon t- talking to the, to the Selenites, what, yeah. one of the things that he does is he goes through the whole history of human, humanity, right? Yeah. And that's the, I mean, at the end of that whole history, we're like, geez, I hope the Selenites don't come down and wipe us out to protect themselves. Yeah. <laughs> because we're because monsters. That can be a conclusion. Totally. Totally. I would conclude yeah. that if I was listening, uh, like the Selenite was. You see, yeah. you fight over useless things like that. Yeah. It's crazy. It is terrible, like getting this kind of stuff. Like that, he, that he puts up a bit of a mirror in front of humanity, and uh, again, like uh, it's similar to War of the Worlds. Yeah. And um, but uh, but in this one is actually like the thing about the wars, um, and the idea behind why hum- humans have wars and stuff hmm? is quite cruel, and uh, and how they treat like. Uh, as they did with the Native Americans when the colonizers came across and then just they didn't give a shit about those people. Mm -hmm. And um, this is the kind of way that humanity would probably do with aliens, too. That's that's what we're we're given to believe just by hearing this story being told to by by Caver, who, you know, he's he's familiar with the history of humans. He's just more interested in science. Right. Oh, yeah. That he doesn't see the implications, I think, until he actually spills spills the truth to the aliens, and then they yes. they're like, "Well, that seems uh, rather extreme. Are you sure you do it that way?" Yeah, and he's oh, a, he, with this with this kind of um like he how he the way he is um focused on science already on Earth when when Bedford and Kava meet meet the first time he's mm-hmm. acting in his scientific naivety. Mm-hmm. So that you That's think right. this human is going to be the first person to encounter another species. Do we really want that? <laughs> 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 the, um, yeah, that, that scene with the, the Cavarite explosion, right? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that's why the book has such a great ending is because we, we're left in suspense. It's like, what are we, what are we going to do about this? Are we going to reform our ways? And yeah. then, what do we get like uh, two uh, two dozen years later or a dozen years later is uh, World War One and yeah. you get yeah well all those uh, things that Wells was saying about why people go to war yep there they are yeah exactly and he mentions all of those things in um, in this in in those speeches to the to the Selenite leaders right yes. he he says you know they give ultimatums and they they, uh, it's honor and we respect the warriors and, uh, on, uh, more countries honor and of course growth and we need to reduce our surplus population. Yeah. And, and then that's when they're getting drunk right at the beginning on the fungus, right? Yeah. <laughs> they, that's what they're getting. They, they're saying all the things that are inside their, their heads, right? And yeah. Bedford says, this is the earth. This is the great place to put the surplus population of the earth. Yeah. Eat this. <laughs> yeah. 
But then this is all coming down to um, hey, she was saying that this is also in biology in the nature of humans. They can't mm. they can't help them. This is mm-hmm. just what humans do. Mm-hmm. And the, the other thing that we're talking about later science fiction. Um, did you get uh, you read Brave New World, right? What did I read? Brave New World by yes, uh, Huxley. Aldous Huxley. Yeah. Yes. So I, I was getting a big Brave New World vibe off of the latter half of this book. Yeah. Um, with um, the you know the people sort of well the Selenites being con- bread controlled. I don't know. You know their their sh- their bodies are shaped and their minds are shaped for their function. They're all the same species, but it, but they they grow up and uh, to fulfill certain work right yeah so yeah as they have in brave new world it's the alphas it is gammas deltas right um and they all love their that's the other thing that goes on in that book is that the deltas like being deltas and the alphas of course can lord it over the right and we see that in in this book when when the when the communication with caver happens they bring in specialists right there's the guy who likes to draw i remember yeah 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 he the says, one who's just the brain and the one who's just uh, the dictionary and <laughs> yeah there's a, so the one who likes to draw the one who communicates with him says yeah. the one who likes to draw likes you because you drew, you drew <laughs> yeah. because he drew pictures on the in, in the dirt and then um the one who the, they bring in one who is like he's really good at metaphor and yes. he's kind of like caver right because yeah. he sort of uh his mind's not where his body is yeah it's off in la la land thinking about la la thoughts <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then there's the this communication specialist who probably doesn't understand most of the things but can communicate between the different and the one uh, who selects. knows all the stuff but just can't yeah. communicate in the right way yeah right and some of the drawings they they really show you know the these there's uh these selenites walking around with huge heads and some with massively bloated heads and then most of them have like uh just sort of thin worker bodies and yeah. but there's some of them that are called heralds and they have like little trumpet mouths yeah right so they can communicate <laughs> to everybody what's going on and yeah it is it's the alpha it's the betas the gammas the deltas it's totally. they have a, a utopia kind of society it sounds yeah. like a dystopia to us, but I think Wells is so genius because remember right at the beginning of the book, we meet uh, Caver and his three workers. Yes. And the three workers, uh, one is a mine, uh, uh, earth specialist, right? He's a gardener. Yes. One is a miner. And the other one was uh, a, a joiner, a woodworker. Yeah. yeah. And they can't. They can't agree whose job it is to keep the furnace stoked, and that's what causes the problem, the, yes. the comedic problem at the beginning, right? The explosion, oh, not explosion, the the uh, what looks like an explosion uh, yeah. where the earth is almost destroyed, <laughs> is because they didn't keep the fur- they all went to the pub to settle it, right? Who's yes. going to? Yes. And nobody um, really has the perfect job for that. Right, and of course it it feels sort of comedic even in the book there. But Bedford, his solution is, I will be the boss. Yeah. Right. Uh, just takes huh. over. That's right. 
He yeah. just takes over, and yeah. Cavern goes along with it, right? Yeah. Because he doesn't. Do you think like I was? I was thinking about the name, mm-hmm. um, Cavor, and I have the impression that uh, Heishi Wells came up with Cavorite first, and then made a name out of that. <laughs> I don't know. I, I was thinking Cave Caver. You know, like he's mm-hmm. kind of like the Selenites. He's making caves. Mm-hmm. I'm not He's sure. He's living in a in a separate world in a cave, like uh, I don't. I mean, Cavorite, it sounds good. I, I yeah, it know. does. This is why I think it, this real, can right? totally be like ah, what what substance can I think of that hasn't been invented? Mm, Cavorite. Yeah. Ah, that's cool. How can yeah. the guy who made it's it? It's an unusual name, any anyways. Yeah, yeah. Bedford and, uh, is in, is a hard. Oh, sorry. Go for it. In the in the movie, I find it funny how the um the British spelling is Cavor with a mm. more of an uh, a, a, a sound, and the, the American woman, uh, she's more pronounced like Caver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't really know how to. How, yeah. Uh, we don't really know how to say it. Caver. I think Caverite though sounds like the right way of saying it. Caver. So. Yeah, it, I mean, yeah. it's not a real name as far as I doubt there's anybody with that name in real life. Yeah. Bedford, so. Bedford is kind of a funny name though too because Ford is for you know it's for crossing a river. Yeah. And bed is bed. <laughs> yeah, I think it's such a uh, anyone's name is so yeah. unspecific. Yeah. But on the other hand, one of the things I, I think it might not be in the in the book but it's it's in one of the movies um they're gonna i think it's when they're drunk on the on the fungus yeah he says um we're gonna be knighted and named uh we'll have a place called bedfordshire yeah and it's like he's gonna be the lord bedford right ah yeah remember yeah yeah and so there's there is this sort of imperial uh, thing going on when they go to the moon, they do they claim it for the queen? I don't think they do in the book, do they? No, I don't think so either. But that's something they do in both the movies. Yes, and it, I think it's it's sort of playing with the colonialism theme. Uh, oh, in, totally. But in a very light way, in both the uh, there's also an audio drama, and they play it fairly lightly as well, although it's a little more serious like the book at the yes. end yeah it, they play up sort of the comedic elements i mean it is comedic in spots but um i i i think it's a very serious book in the same way that um that brave new world is yes uh, uh, so one of the things that other also connected it to brave new world to me mm-hmm. is interesting is you remember when we meet the moon calves for the first time yeah um, the the word moon calf actually is uh, precedes this book right it's not uh it's not uh, made up by wells um okay. the character uh caver sees the moon calves and uh says they're it's like they're not fully grown up or something like that but yeah. if if you look up what a moon calf is they are aborted fe- fetuses of cows that or, uh, ah. what what's that? Uh, false, not false births. Aborted um, fetus. Yeah, it's like a fetus of a cow that comes out too early or is oh, right. brought out too early in yeah. order to make the cow just give milk. 
yeah. instead of having to feed its baby, right? Yes. And that's that gives all sorts of resonances um, in a very interesting way uh, to what's going on with the moon calves. I mean, we get a scene where they're being cut up, right? Yeah. In a very sort of um, the way that uh, the it's a scene that makes people who are vegetarians vegetarians right yeah <laughs> they've got like all these little choppers chopping up this giant beast and 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 they're happy with it because it's their job yeah absolutely <laughs> that's what yeah. they do and yeah they're bred for it and that's mm. what the cows are bred for but yeah. uh, do you remember the reading material that uh bed uh not bedford caver brings when they go into space oh, yeah, they, he's bringing this magazine uh, Bedford brings uh, he find he, he finds any old thing that he can find lying around. He finds a magazine called Tidbits. Yes, which, which is a ridiculous magazine uh, full of okay. advertisements for uh, you know a, a lady of means uh, needs to raise money, uh, huh. so she's her fish knives or something like that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the gentleman out of work needs you know it's just a, a bunch of little sad stories that he reads on the way to the moon. But I mean, Caver planned a little better, right? Yeah. He brought uh the complete works of William Shakespeare. Yeah, right. And um because he knew that the voyage to the moon was going to take a while. Mm. And it's not mm-hmm. clear how long they're up there, but um True. But uh one of the plays and they they do make a point of it in uh I think it's the 64 movie. Might be in the 2010 movie of mentioning one of the plays and that totally triggered me on on no, the, another connection to Brave New World, so um, he mentions reading the Tempest, and I don't, I don't yes. think this is actually in the book. Um, uh, but you know uh, yeah, I think it actually is. Is it okay? Well, that's even yes. cooler. I missed it. Yes, I guess it the is. first time. Um, the story of the Tempest is it's a uh, a wizard um, uh, stranded on an island, causing you know grief for other people, and then. Uh, Blah, 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 blah. But it's also a story of colonialism. Yes. And the only occupant of the island who's actually from there is named Caliban. Yes. Right? He's the, the monstrous creature, right? Uh, who's, I think, completely sympathetic. And I, oh, I yeah. think he's a I character. I like the character so much. He's, he's so, he's funny. He's, he's, <laughs> he's kind of wise in his untutored way. And he's, and he's right. He has right on his side, too. Yes. Uh, but one of the insults that um, Prospero throws at at uh, Caliban is mooncalf. Ah. Isn't that interesting? Right. That is totally a parallel. And that's where the title of Brave New World comes from, too. True. I remember that. I remember that um, correlation. Has, has such people in it. And that is thrown out ironically, right? Yeah. That is thrown out ironically. Yeah. Um, it's not thrown out as like, oh, what a wonderful world we have. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Right. And yeah, I, I think you know that 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 is not used. That line is not used in this book. Is what um, it's the one slip up that Wells made that that uh, Huxley picks up and says. You know what? He did a really interesting thing here talking about the Selenite society. I'm going to yeah. make a whole book about that. Yes. And I'm going to use the line that he didn't use from. Isn't that interesting? It is. 
that yeah, that correlation is actually quite impressive. I didn't I didn't think about that, but I did think about something else. You know how you just mentioned that they're reading about this play, mm-hmm. and uh, Bedford is is That's supposed right. to write a play. That's and right. I think the overall story is very play like. So I kind I of was had thinking to... it would work as a play. You know, two guys on stage. Yeah, and I totally like I can I try to come up with the idea of Act One, Act Two, Act Three, and stuff. And I'm not sure if I'm totally correct, but I think the act one is when they connect with each other, each other, and the experiments mm-hmm. stuff, mm-hmm. and they prepare the sphere. Then there is a kind of interlude when they go into space. You know, this mm-hmm. section of the flight there to the moon, mm-hmm. and then they have act two when they arrive on the moon, and then they're meeting the Solonites, and all the stuff happens there. Mm-hmm. And um, the act three is then when they get separated. And Bedford's trying to find the sphere again because that's actually quite a big chunk of the book. Mm-hmm. It, and, in fact, yeah, I, I was I was looking at my I, I was listening to the book and I think, oh, it's right near the end. And then I looked at it and it's like two hours left to go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So this is why I think this is can totally be separated into two acts. And then there's oh. again an interlude, which is then Bedford in space, space kind by of himself. Yeah. by himself. So there's no connection again. And then there's the epilogue. Where there's all the transmissions from the moon and cover, um, mm. uh, yeah, coming up because this is kind of not so connected to the main story again. It's kind mm-hmm. of like, uh, some afterthoughts. So it totally feels like a play itself, you know, with two people yeah, and, um, it would make a good play. I mean, I, I yeah, was thinking I think so about too. how, how you would stage it, right? You've got Caver sending these transmissions on the left side of the stage, right? With the, you know, sort of a cavey background. And um, on the right, you see uh, Bedford in Amalfi having breakfast again, right? Yeah. With gold, right? That he's brought back from the moon. Um, The the gold that he brings back from the moon, uh, those are the the sticks, right? That they they were used to prod him he mm. just he, he kills them takes their stuff brings it back to the earth yeah uh, he's living he's living in italy right in a beautiful villa yeah um enjoying uh, the revenue from from the book that he wrote that's been serialized in the strand it's even mentioned in the book right <laughs> yes yes i i read that <laughs> and and it was published in the strand right is yes. uh, i read the, the one from the strand <laughs> so this is very um this is very meta and yeah. apparently this is this is a very english thing too apparently the english didn't uh get uh literature started yeah. as early as everybody else yeah. and so when magazines hit and sort of that experience of serialized magazines happens they they're very um uh, i don't know meta <laughs> is i guess the word yeah. to put it yeah, but also like the whole setup that he's like he's gaining something oh, from yeah. that visit and then have a great life afterwards yeah. until the uh, uh, the the journalist comes along and like digs out and finds about the, um, the transmissions and stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. It's uh, it's all really like you can really imagine this being a really cool play. You can really see the staging very well and like um, how. They have three different settings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's pretty cool. I think you can really do some something from it better than a movie. I think. Well, I, I, I'm just I'm 
more and more impressed with the book the more I think about it because it it is not well known like yeah like his other stuff it's sort of a little bit out out there the other thing that is really cool in the meta stuff so there you know the first publication is not in the strand it actually starts in cosmopolitan which is an american magazine right yeah um it starts just a little bit before it starts in november uh, 1900 whereas the strand i think starts uh later in yeah. 1900 um it says and, it says in 1901 yeah um i'll see if i can get the uh so the strand december 1900 okay. uh starts so it starts a month later ends in august 1901 Cosmopolitan yeah. starts in November 1900, but ends in April 1901. Yeah. And the reason it's it doesn't take as long is because actually the Cosmopolitan version is not finished. Oh, right. And I think that there might be evidence that it was being serialized as he wrote it. So that yeah. he's talking about... So the very end of the... Uh, cosmopolitan version it ends with the chapter where you think the the novel's over yes it doesn't end on the it says the end right it's not like uh, there's more okay and he hasn't got any transmissions okay so it ends like this um and caver had committed suicide in a more elaborate way than any human being ever did before so the story closes as finally and completely as a dream it fits in so little with all the other things of life, so much of it is so utterly remote from all human experience, the leaping, the eating, the breathing, and those weightless times, that indeed there are moments when in spite of my moon gold, I do more than believe myself the whole thing was a dream. Mm. <laughs> and that's the end of the book, right? That's um, amazing, because then it could have been a dream. <laughs> exactly, except mm. for the moon gold, right? Yes. Um, because even the Cavorite spaceship, and I want to talk about that, what happens to it, but um, even even the Cavorite spaceship is gone. Um, and then after the end, it says, note, uh, but it doesn't continue in the next issue. It says, yeah. note, a most extraordinary communication has just been received, unless we are being elaborately hoaxed. This story of Mr. Bedford is not fiction at all. Mr. Caver is alive in the moon and he is sending messages to the earth for that we have no less an authority than mr mr julius wendigree so it's actually telling of the next chapter right but then it just doesn't appear it doesn't doesn't appear uh, it appears in a book i guess but the thing is is i i'm like can you imagine reading that and then saying wait a second is he hoaxing me here yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's fun that yeah. you know, that feels a bit like the um like this one audio play that they did um of a War of the Worlds where the people yes. actually thought Sure. It was happening. They're using the medium. And that's another Wells one, right? Yes. That's really good. Yeah. And it's really uh -huh. clever. <laughs> the um the I want to talk about that spaceship. <laughs> what happens to Cavalry How it disappears. Space. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think that there's a sequel there, right? That never happens except in our minds. Yeah. So the, he he's really worried about his gold, right? Right. So they he he gets some bathers to help him take the gold up to the hotel. Yeah. Uh, and while he's doing that, he's supervising them carrying his gold for him. 
Yes. Um, he sees a little boy on a bicycle following them, shadowing them. Yeah. And then the little boy goes back to the spaceship on the beach. Yeah, right. And then uh, the, one, of the, one of the bathers says, don't worry about him. He'll be fine. He won't touch you. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> and then he disappears. Yeah, into right. In the, in the movie, in the movie, it just pops into the ocean and just sinks. Right. Which and is I not... think, which is, which is boring. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of a, a boy getting onto it and then disappearing with it. Yeah, he's going to Mars or something, right? Yeah, totally. It can be totally a, a different story. Yeah. Now, there's there's another aspect that I think is really cool, and it, it almost calls for a sequel. That uh, really, and it kind of I think ties also into Bedford alone on the spaceship. What what's that chapter called? Is like in the lost cosmos of time or something? You know, where he's just on his way back to the Earth and. And nothing's Bedford happening. In infinitive, you know, in infinite space. Right, Bedford in infinite space. That's a, a great, great yeah. title. Yeah, it is. Um, so in when they get to the moon, right? They don't. They lose track of time in a very interesting way. I think Wells is trying to say something there about physics or hint at it. Yeah. Right. So there, he says, um, "How long do you think we've been here?" Um, and he says a couple of days, right? Yeah. He says well, it's been at least ten days. Yes. According and to the uh, moon going around the Earth. Or right, right. The yeah. fact that the moon takes fourteen days to do its day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't have that much time left uh, before their spaceship's going to be uh, frozen in on the moon, the and they won't. Be able yeah. To, yeah. So. Um, what, what 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 what's going on there with with time being weird and the fact that they they really don't sleep except for the when they get hit on the head or whatever. Yeah. Right? And they they're also super hungry. Where <laughs> did that come from? <laughs> right? Isn't there something weird going on about like time? Well, this kind of connects now what we have again with the gravitational waves and stuff and the relativity Mm. Einstein. You're right. I never thought of it that way. You know, this is the kind of relativity of time and gravity being like connected or something. Yeah. I was thinking that maybe, um, uh, when watching the, uh, the movies, I thought maybe Caver would still be alive up on the moon. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. of time being different there. But uh, it might work the other way. May- maybe the ages you faster. I can't tell. Like if if they were relatively, you know. Uh, yeah, but if the moon the moon goes around the Earth a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a, a little extra speed, but it's not that much. I mean, it's not relatively. But it's not really as so much as if you were on Mars. Uh, but even so, there. I mean, it's you still have to go. I mean, you wouldn't even notice it, right? Like. Not the way it's noticed in the book. It's almost like maybe travel. You know, when you're traveling, uh, time works differently in this certain sense. Like um, each day seems much more full. Yes. When you're, you know, visiting a new country or, you know, walking in a new city. uh, Yeah, when you do something new, it's really really Yeah, you really get exhausted from 
just all the new data being intaken. Yeah. So I'm thinking there's there's something to do with that maybe, but it's also I think he he is like saying, well, how do we know how time works? We all live on the same planet. And, yes. Uh, when we get off from there, maybe things will be a little bit different. I think he he he's doing some interesting things there. I think just, so too. I'm just looking up the uh, you know the equations that uh, Einstein did about relativity and stuff and he sure. came up with that in 1905 and 1907 right. or something right so it's it's after this book it's after this book but around about the time mhm it's quite yeah. clever one of the one of the criticisms i heard um about this book a lot of people have criticisms of it uh um even you know uh cs lewis wrote um a series of books um, inspired by how he didn't like the society portrayed, okay. uh, which I think is funny because I think it's both societies are sort of the same. They're supposed to be, you know, humans. And so one of the one of the things that's happening is is that Wells is saying, isn't it crazy we don't have one world government that that we're always fighting with each other? Yes. Right. And yes. a lot of people hear that and say. Brave new world, a uh, new world order, right? Yeah. Not just, not just they think one world government is a bad thing. Wells is thinking of it like, wouldn't it be a good idea to stop all the sort of infighting and, you know, just get organized and not be so inefficient? Yeah. And that's what he gives the society on the moon, right? Yeah. But it's also kind of a fascistic society in that, you know. Of course. Uh, you don't really have a choice of what it's a totalitarian society where one person says and all the others are doing. That's right. So <laughs> he, I don't think he had a he had a point he's trying to make other than let's look at this. Yeah. But a lot of people reading it, they read it and they say, "Oh God, I got to write my own book on this." Yeah. And it, they just sort of um, they. They do their own version of yes. of it, and I think that's really a sign of a good book when it inspires a lot of other books. I think so too. I think so, especially if if it uh, if it has lots of different uh, outcomes. Like you mm -hmm. can you can take you can take the essence and just uh, come up with so many different ways of um, interpretation. I think mm -hmm. that is always a sign of uh, a really good point. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, 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 the other thing that happened, I don't know if you, uh, no, you probably didn't see it. I don't think I directed it at you, but it was weird. When I started doing this book, I started with the uh, audiobook, right? And then yeah. I I started listening to the audio drama at night. So I go to yeah. bed, I press the play button, and then fall asleep almost instantly. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> which is it's a it's a really good soporific. I'm I'm very like if I don't have an audio drama to go to sleep to, it you know I will I'll stay up. But if oh wow I close my eyes and it doesn't I like I do not fall asleep. But if I if I put an audio drama on I go to sleep almost instantly because I'm not thinking about Crazy. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, especially if, if it's an audio drama. I mean, there's so much going on more than in an audiobook. There is, but they're shorter. That's the good. So you don't lose your spot. Uh. You can always just sort of right. scan around. It's much easier <laughs> to find your spot. Um, of course. So I, so I, I put one on and I went to sleep, and 
I when I woke up in the morning, I had had two dreams. And usually I only have one dream that I can report on and I tweet my dreams out, right? But I had had mm-hmm. two dreams and the the first dream uh I doesn't matter. I just tweeted it, right? And then the second one was about the ending of this book. And yeah. I I I tweeted it and I said uh I dreamt that uh Cavor uh was left on the moon and that he had transmitted by wireless telegraphy <laughs> to Bedford <laughs> that he was still alive. And I'm thinking well, that sounds like a really good ending. I wonder if that, I wonder if Wells will do something that smart, right? And then I find, finish the book. I find that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, yeah. did you dream that or did your unconscious no, brain hear it? I think my unconscious brain totally heard it or semi I think so too. Right? Because that, but I genuinely thought it was my own dream. And I think that's really weird, right? <laughs> totally weird. Because yeah. normally I wouldn't ever think that something I read in a book was in, happened in my own life or whatever. But um, I thought that was such a, oh, that'll be a great ending. I wonder, I wonder how it actually ends. And it's true. That's exactly <laughs> what happens. But it doesn't end like suddenly that way. It ends yeah. um, sort of in a long, drawn out version of that. It's sort of three yes. quarters through the book. Yeah, so what? your brain cut it all down to one good ending. <laughs> yeah, trimmed it, trimmed it. And um, I, I think that, that if you just think about why that's such a great thing is this guy, the two men go up to the moon, uh, one leaves the other one behind. And it's yes. like, I left him for dead, right? He left him for dead. He, he read the note, he left him for dead, and then yeah. he's up there still. He's not dead. Yeah. I'm still up here. Yeah. But the way he transmits, Caver is not resentful, right? Yeah. He's not angry. But if you were. No, he wanted to do that. Yeah. But if you or I had done that, we're Bedford sitting in Amalfi in Italy enjoying our tea and eggs. (laughs) Uh, Don't you think we'd feel immensely guilty for having left our friend on the moon? I think he did felt it I think he did feel guilty but then he thought ah uh he's probably dead anyway and that was his excuse to not feel so guilty but then he gets this message saying I'm still alive right yeah but then it's like oh and but then he's not saying like I'm still alive you left me here no but he's saying like I I I stayed here and had yeah. this great encounter or like great these yeah. um uh, talks and stuff with a selenite so that then in the end um bedford doesn't have to feel guilty right you know his guilt gets kind of like taken away because yeah but i think wouldn't have i think he wouldn't have felt guilty anyway in that he no he just turns it into money right he said like look now i can sell my adventures better right yeah Uh, and i think (laughs) he's not the kind of person to have self-doubts about this kind of stuff exactly Exactly. And I think that in our reading it, when we start seeing, you know, sort of his his version of the story, uh, mm-hmm. w- one of the things that that Bedford says about Caver is that he's not very charitable to him in his descriptions of their early adventures. Yeah. Right. 
when they're back on Earth before he, because Bedford narrates the whole book, right? Um, when when Caver has these transmissions saying of how it actually went, um, yeah. he said, "Well, that's not exactly how it happened." He's remembering it slightly <laughs> wrong, um, because yeah. Bedford is, you know, putting the best possible spin on it, probably to fool himself, not just to fool of us. Of course, he's sort of, of not. Course. He's not trying to fool us as much as he's just. That's the way you know he sees things. Yeah, and I think, I think this is also showing that it's kind of not his fault. You know what I mean? He's he is not doing this on purpose. He is just this is just the way he is as a human. So are, meaning that he can't. Terrible. Huh? That humans are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't say all of them because Kava is so different. Yes. But he also can't, he can't act different from himself. You know, he, um, he can't act uh, generous and amazing and welcoming. He can only act as in his little science, scientific mind that is very concentrated on a certain thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bedford is just, um, quite a violent aggressive human being and he can't act different this is just the way he is and he's not doing it on purpose but um just from his nature i think this is also a point that hg wells wants to make there i think you're right mm. well, i'm really glad we we read this book i i'm kind of getting yeah, sad I'm, too. That, I'm, I'm getting sad that there isn't a lot of other great hg wells books out there yeah. But I'll tell you a secret. Um uh if you don't tell anybody else. I've never <laughs> read I've never read The War of the Worlds. No? Never. Oh yeah. Wait. Wait. I know I the story. Yeah, I did read it. I I'm, did read I, it. I know the story. I've seen the movies. I saw, you know, the T V show. You should read it. It's great. That's what I hear. That's what I hear. Do it. This well, was one maybe. of the first science fiction books that I started reading when I um, got together with Luke and then started going back to reading science fiction books. That was one of the first ones. And it's one of the best ones I hear. Yeah. So maybe you'll and join me on uh, uh, my future read-along on uh, The War of the Worlds. I totally would do that. All right. That's the plan then. And I, I also read the version, you know, with the loads of nice uh, illustrations. These illustrations are just so beautiful. I'm track those down, yeah. Uh, I think reading reading it with these old serialized magazines, mm. it's just really fun to see it as as it appeared, and you sort of see why the book was written that way too. I mean, imagine yeah. seeing those, those chapter endings and you say. Wow, that's a cliffhanger, right? Um, or it just yeah. ends. There's like, is there going to be a next chapter? No, that's the end of the book. It says the end. Yeah. But, but oh no, we just received some transmissions, and it turns out he's still alive. <laughs> he's alive. Oh, <laughs> what a great end! Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think that H.G. Wells had some influence on the pictures, on the illustrations? I don't know. Um. Uh, there is a, a kind of a parallel thing. I, mean, I, I haven't heard anything about Wells's uh, 
influence on these particular books. In the Strand, um, sometimes authors did get sway. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the one of the things that we sort of touched on earlier, so sort of how adaptations of this are always going to sort of take take away the the plants on the moon, right? From mm. from what we know now. Um, yes. There's a similar book serialized in the Strand also called The Lost World, which I did a show on. Uh, it's by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and that's the yes. one where they go to South America and they discover uh, oh, dinosaurs are still alive, right, in this one corner of yeah. the world. And that was really profoundly influential on sort of people being interested in dinosaurs uh, okay. that were alive rather than dinosaurs that were uh, just bones in museums, right? Yes. And one of the things that happens in that book and in the illustrations is that you get to see dinosaurs with skin right now one of the things that we have today as a result of that sort of mistake is uh, that they don't have feathers right because yeah yeah at the time they didn't think they had feathers there's no reason to think they do now we think pretty much all dinosaurs are birds right they're just covered in feathers um yeah and and after finding the archaeopteryx yeah, and and so because of um, uh, because of this sort of visual influence of of fiction on mm. on dinosaurs, movies like Jurassic Park and the most recent mm. Jurassic Park, where none of the dinosaurs are covered in feathers, is my understanding. Um, we are getting sort of a false picture of the reality. So yeah. what what happens in 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 this book is we see a false picture of the reality in that the there's plants growing on the moon during the sun, right? When the sun's out. Yeah. Um, but when we find out that w- by going to the moon in 1969 and such, that it's just, you know, dry and <laughs> there's no plants growing on it. Yeah. They just take that out of the story, right? But today, even though we know pretty much the dinosaurs have feathers. They just won't put them in because that conflicts with people's sort of visual representation of what dinosaurs look like through all the other yeah. movies that came before, right? And yes. so because we have no time machine that can go back and capture footage of, you know, the Jurassic Age, we'll never be yeah. able to <laughs> pass this point, it seems. Like we're so – it's it's like that daylight savings time problem we were talking about before the podcast right we're stuck unable to shift out of a a system that doesn't work yeah well i think that that uh, that's a good point for a lot of things in human in human life there are lots Mm -hmm. of things that you think ah i think we're stuck and then we're also stuck with war and we're also stuck with aggression and violence and mm-hmm. uh, like uh, economic pictures and how society should work, we really stuck mm-hmm. with that. There's no, not really something that you think ah there will be a, a development in a really cool direction. Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> but I think what what's so cool is that when you read a, a novel like this one, right, it, and you get those scenes with Bedford alone, you know, completely yeah. alone from everybody else in the. It's mm-hmm. all society. He's, he loses all of those horrible traits that he's sort of yes. personally responsible for. 
in yeah. sort of his particular niche on earth is to sort of just be the asshole who runs out on his right. debts and and takes over other people's plans and you know murders a bunch of aliens who just want to know what the hell he's doing on his yeah. on their right <laughs> yeah it's, yeah, um, and then it, like these kind of pictures always all go down to um, me thinking about if you zoom out on Earth, mm-hmm. if you zoom out even further, it's just a planet with living things on it. We're nothing. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, what are we that we have to fight against each other? Uh, we are all living on the same round thing. We're all stuck here by gravity. <laughs> That's a... Uh, I think these. Uh, this is why these uh, these interludes, these scenes when they are on the on the on the way to the moon. I think this is why they are so important to the book. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, um, yeah. No, I really like the book. I really think it was a, a a good a good add to my reading experiences. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.